This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Twenty twenty two is in its final days, and it has been yet another turbulent year in US politics. Russia's invasion of Ukraine, an FBI raid on a certain former president's home, the overturning of abortion rights previously enshrined in Roe versus Wade, and just last month, midterm elections that disappointed Republicans and saw Donald Trump branded with the L word loser. With all that going on, we have certainly not been short of material on this podcast. But what should we expect to happen in Washington, D.C. and beyond in 2023? As the runners and riders begin to jostle for the 2024 presidential contest and the two main parties confront each other in a newly deadlocked Congress, even as they contend with outside threats like an ongoing global energy crisis. With all that, what do the next 12 months hold for America and its democracy? This week, I bring together two political sages, one Democrat, the other Republican, asking them what they envisage from the new year. I'm Jonathan Friedland, columnist at The Guardian, and this is Politics Weekly American. You know, once again, uh, the American people were the heroes of this story, and they rose up to prevent MAGA from seizing the kind of power that MAGA wants to have in this country. So I was very pleased and happy. You might recognize that as the voice of Simon Rosenberg, Democratic strategist, founder of the New Democrat Network, a progressive think tank based in D.C. He was mocked in some quarters for prophesying that the Democrats would actually do well on election night in November. He said it right here on this podcast. And yes, Democrats did just lose the House. But as we've been reporting, there were some big blue wins and certainly no red wave. You know, there was never a red wave. I mean, this was, you know, the first piece that I wrote that this may be an atypical midterm was in October of 2021. I mean, there was plenty of data suggesting that the election I was seeing and that ended up happening was possible. Um, you know, what's distressing to me is that so many important commentators and very smart people got it so wrong. And that's something we're going to have to be working through as we start to go do this next round of political analysis heading into, you know, this next election cycle. I mean, seeing the repudiation, pretty thorough repudiation in the swing states of so many of these committed election deniers who were handpicked by Donald Trump was just an incredibly important thing to happen. Not just Sarah Longwell is publisher of The Bulwark, an online meeting place for the 
anti-Trump Republicans, for those taking a stance against MAGA, Make America Great Again. She's co-founder of the organization Defending Democracy Together and executive director of the Republican Accountability Project. The only incentive that the Republican Party will have to change will be through sustained electoral defeats. You know, I, I do focus groups basically every week. Every time we would do a focus group with basically what, what we characterize as swing voters, so people who had voted for Trump in 16, but then hadn't voted for Trump in 2020, the fear was that there could be a lot of backsliding. And you saw that in a place like Virginia, where because you know they're, they're sort of center right in their disposition, uh, and because they're frustrated with the condition of the country, that they just sort of go back to voting for Republicans, even though they voted against Donald Trump in the last election. But as I was doing the focus groups, I was listening to these swing voters say over and over again, they wanted to vote for Republicans, but they didn't like the individual Republicans that they had to vote for. And so seeing voters reject those extreme candidates is gratifying in terms of how where voters are, you know, vote that voters are looking at these extremes and saying no to them, even when the conditions are really tough, even when they kind of wanted to vote for the other party, they didn't because they rejected extremism. And I just find that at a bleak time politically, or where we'd been feeling sort of bleak in a sustained way, or I certainly have watching Republicans sort of descend into madness. This was just so good. Yeah, heartening for you. We're going to be looking ahead to what 2023 might bring, but obviously in the light of what 2022 did bring, and and, and right in the closing weeks, a sort of sting in the tail, i put this to you, Simon, that the Democrats knew that December would bring more news, and it did in the result in Georgia. We Again, a race we covered a lot on this podcast, Raphael Warnock seeking re-election against another Trump endorsee in the former athlete Herschel Walker. Warnock did beat him and people were, you know, getting the champagne out saying that's 51. Now we did a whole podcast last week on the difference between 51 as opposed to 50. And it's a big difference in controlling the Senate for Democrats. And, you know, the the champagne was still, you know, swilling at the bottom of the glass when Kirsten Sinema announced, Senator from Arizona, that she would no longer be calling herself a Democrat, that she would leave the party. And from now on, be branded as an independent and perhaps, crucial question, even seek re-election as an independent come 2024. Just explain to people who, who are not sort of immersed in the minutiae of this, whether or not it means Democrats will have, you know, in effect, go back to 50, or does it not mean that? Just explain that to us. Yeah, I mean, the truth is we don't really know what's going to happen here. But what we do know is that the senator has said she's going to caucus with the Democrats, meaning that she will be still part of the Democratic group the way that Bernie Sanders and I'm forgetting his name. Angus from Maine, King. From Angus Maine. King in Maine, you know, are, are independents but caucus with the Democrats. So the likely scenario is that there's no real significant change. She was always kind of a recalcitrant member of the Democratic family anyway in the last cycle, not always agreeing with the president. So I, I don't know from a legislative standpoint, particularly because the Republicans control the House, I'm not really convinced it's going to have that much of a difference in what happens in Congress. You know, what happens in the election is still a long way off. And I don't I don't think we know that she will run for re-election. You know, I think this has been a remarkable election for the Democratic Party. And yes, it like everything in our business, right, it's not perfect and there's setbacks along the way. But as we discussed in October, I mean there was enormous skepticism 
this was even going to be a close competitive election. But not only did we gain ground in the battlegrounds, pick up a Senate seat, we actually have probably gained five state legislative chambers and didn't lose a single state legislative chamber. So a remarkable election all around for us. But we all understand that 2024 is going to be another you know, battle ahead. And But we go into it, I think, feeling you know, strong and confident and not weak and beleaguered and defensive. In a moment, I'm going to ask you, Sarah Longwell, about the House, which, of course, Republicans took. But just before we leave the Senate, because we've talked about Kirsten Sinema, that sort of upended some of the arithmetic around 51. Uh, the figure of Joe Manchin, the very independent-minded, some would say, you know, some some would use other words to describe him, uh, Democratic senator from West Virginia, often very conservative in his politics, Questions to you, Simon, first. Do, do we see him going the same way as Kirsten Cinema, perhaps declaring as an independent? At the moment, he was asked that question and he said, you know, I'm going to look at everything. I haven't made up my mind, even about whether seeking re-election, who knows what the future might bring. But I'm just wondering, does he go back to being incredibly important again, where Joe Biden, the Democrats, cannot get anything through in 2023 unless Joe Manchin gives it his blessing? Because some were hoping that gain of a seat in Pennsylvania would make Joe Manchin, frankly, a bit less important. Yeah, listen, I I don't think there's going to be a lot of legislating in the next two years, or at least things that pass both chambers and become signed into law. There's going to be a lot of bills potentially passed or attempted to be passed. I think the real focus in Washington and by the president and the Democratic Party is going to be, you know, finishing the job in Ukraine making sure that these three very important bills that were passed, the infrastructure bill, the CHIPS bill, and the climate bill, are well implemented, and we start seeing the effects of these investments on the ground. I mean, the the government is going to be very busy. The way I think about the next two years is that there's two big jobs ahead of the government, is to make sure that we're successful in Ukraine, and also that these three incredibly important economic investments, bills that invest in our future are well implemented and people start feeling it on the ground. I think that's going to be a lot of the focus of the Democratic Party. You've explained there that you can't have much in the way of legislative ambition because it is a divided Congress. Democrats have increased their majority in the Senate. But this brings us to the House, where Democrats lost. We've covered that here, the departure of Nancy Pelosi. Control of the House, uh, Sarah Longwell, is now with Republicans. Um, it's a narrower margin than, than all the red wave talk prompted some to expect. But now that it's there, how tough will it be for Republicans and for that new speaker, given the slimness, the narrowness of their margin of victory in the House? Yeah, it sort of can't be overstated how weak Kevin McCarthy is coming into this position of speaker, if he comes in at all. So right now, we're watching sort of this chaotic rounds of voting uh, that's going to happen. All the There's all this behind-the-scenes wrangling. And what's happening is, is that the MAGA faction, or even just the hard-right faction, is trying to wring concessions out of Kevin McCarthy because they don't trust him. It's funny because for all of Kevin McCarthy's sort of going down to Mar-a-Lago to resurrect Trump, sucking up to Trump, you know, getting Marjorie Taylor Greene to vouch for him. She is one of the people supporting him, which is sort of wild to think about. She's the quite out there sort of previously fringe Republican from Georgia, but now slightly less fringe, very right wing figure, but in a way closer to the heart of things. Well, because Kevin McCarthy has had to pacify her. Um, she has she had had quit. She rose to start 
as somebody who kind of represented this very MAGA faction. And Kevin McCarthy, I think, felt like in order to clinch the speakership, he was going to need to make nice with her. And so he is committed to committee assignments for her and has put her at the center of, you know, he's, she stands next to him often. She's now quite, quite powerful. And yet for all of those concessions, there is still a hard right faction in, in the party that believes Kevin McCarthy will, will do things like uh, work with Democrats to fund the government or, or whatnot. And so they're going to try to hold out to get more power. But then he's also going to have this the sort of more moderates, more sensible people who don't want to spend all their time investigating uh, Hunter Biden or impeaching Mayorkas or, 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 or those kinds of things. And so it just makes it very difficult for him to govern. And I'll, and I'll say, you assume it was going to be Kevin McCarthy. And I would still, if I had to bet on it, I would still say it's going to be Kevin McCarthy. But it might not be. And if it isn't, if it isn't, um, Sarah, who's the name we should be looking out for? So it's probably ends up being somebody like Steve Scalise. He's just somebody who has maybe a slightly better relationship with some of these hard right guys. Uh, I've heard some people, uh, I think Matt Gates say that he was, uh, that, that might be acceptable to him. For a lot of people, they just want a pound of flesh out of McCarthy. They don't want it to be him. Don Bacon um, of Nebraska, congressman from Nebraska, who is on the sort of more sensible side, has also been threatening. I think this is not going to happen, but he has been sort of threatening. If it's not going to be McCarthy, that he may work with Democrats and bring along some moderate Republicans to have a more moderate uh, speaker. If this thing spins out of control, you could find yourself, this has happened before, you know, to John Boehner, and it just ends. So it's all still very much in flux. You know, there was a time when people would put outlandish scenarios forward, and I would think to myself, no, that's never going to happen. These days, I find myself thinking, whatever's the most outlandish is the one that's most likely uh, to happen. So people should brace themselves anyway for some turbulence. And if there's going to be any activity, it may well take the form of investigations, committee hearings, probing. You mentioned Hunter Biden, the president's son, also Alejandro Mayorkas, the secretary uh, for Homeland Security. So, that you know, that's the kind of activity... It will that we may um, brace ourselves for. I suppose before we even get to any of that, there is a sort of practical matter about uh, making sure that the uh, government can pay its bills, and we, there's a deadline looming that if the you know Congress doesn't get its act together, there will be a government shutdown. Just on that, just talk us through, Sarah, what 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 the politics of that is and how you think that will break. Well, I, I, let me just back up and say one thing, which is that the byproduct of this being such a bad election for Republicans is manifesting in a lot of the Republican leadership who who everybody sort of thought was going to be de facto in charge, like Kevin McCarthy, like Mitch McConnell. They're getting challenged. They're getting challenged by these new sort of factions that have built up within the party. Um, even Mitch McConnell, you know, was sort of briefly challenged. And there is a group of them, you know, Rand Paul and Mike Lee. And these are people who are hardcore on government spending. That's their main issue. And so this is one where the Freedom Caucus types and some of the folks in the Senate, the debt, the debt hawks, they will push for concessions in order or and Ted Cruz, you know, Ted Cruz has shut down the government before um, in order to not raise the debt ceiling. And so this is one of the big fights that there's a certain faction in both the House and Senate. They're going to want to pick this fight and they're going to want to wrangle concessions out of Democrats around spending in order to raise the debt ceiling. When those talks go poorly, what happens is, is you wind up, as we've we've seen happen before, 
where they just shut the government down. And it goes on for some period of time as they engage in a standoff. And that's a very scary moment because there's so many things like Americans, just America's credit rating is at stake. You know, there's a lot of big uh, repercussions to doing these things. It's It's a scary place to play, you know, chicken. And I suppose one thing, reason why these things keep on happening is the political peril maybe feels a little distant because the, the, there's just been elections and there won't be elections again for nearly two years. And so perhaps some of those debt hawks and others do feel able to sort of play political games because they, they won't pay an immediate price for that. It, as we speak, it does look like they've come up with some kind of um, you a know, framework, compromise yes. bipartisan, a framework. Yeah. So uh, maybe as we speak, both sides will step back from the brink. Simon, to you, there was a ceremony this week that we saw Joe Biden sign into law the Respect for Marriage Act as a kind of antidote to the 1990s era Defence of Marriage Act, which went out of its way to to head off the equal marriage movement and define marriage instead as between a man and a woman. I mean, the importance of this is it says essentially that states have to honour and accept uh, as valid marriage licences outside that state, even if uh, they are for unions that that state uh, might otherwise want to not recognise. And I'm thinking of same-sex marriages, but also incredibly interracial unions. I mean, many listeners to this, I think, will be shocked that this is even a thing. The thinking behind it, we should explain, was partly because of that Roe v. Wade judgment, which I referred to, obviously one of the seismic political events of the year, which said abortion is no longer a constitutionally protected right. Instead, it should be left up to individual states. That led many to fear that actually this same Supreme Court, with its six to three conservative majority, might start thinking, looking at other um, rights uh, that had previously been accepted and saying they too could be up to the discretion of the states and that could in mean you know marriages not being recognized i'm just wondering if this is a harbinger for 2023 whether you are you yourself expecting to see more legislation coming or or moves perhaps you know in the senate or elsewhere somehow designed to preempt decisions of the supreme court There's no question that the extremism of the Supreme Court cost the Republicans dearly in this election. There was a rejection of the kind of extremist decisions that were made, Dobbs being the most important one, the ending of Roe v. Wade. There has to be terror inside the political class of Republicans that this extremist court is going to continue issuing decisions. They're going to push the Republican Party further and further away uh, from voters in, in ways that could potentially do generational harm. If you're a reasonable Republican like Sarah, you can't be encouraged. You know, the great hope, the anti-Trump, uh, Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, came out with an extremist set of statements about vac- vaccines and, and COVID that were have to be disheartening. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, he's now asking the Florida Supreme Court to greenlight an investigation into, and the way he put it, is any, uh, any and all wrongdoing in Florida with respect to COVID-19 vaccines. To anyone who believes that he's going to present himself as sort of an alternative to MAGA, it was as deeply MAGA as anything that anybody's done in the last few months. And so I think part of the fundamental dynamic here, one of the things I'm very interested in is seeing if John Roberts now has more ammunition to try to rein in the extremists who dominated the court uh, in this last cycle and that the court itself, 
you know, moves away and backs away from sort of this, you know, this extremist course that it's been on. This is really important. And I think certainly we could see, you know, in the next two years, if we see 10-year-olds having babies and you see pictures of the babies and the families and everything else, you know, the sort of craziness of what's happened on this issue could end up becoming far more central to our politics than it even was over the last six months. And so yeah. I think you're, what you're raising here is really important. And it is certainly the cent- set of, a, a central set of questions about what happens with us in the next two years. It, it is, Sarah, a fascinating thought that, that actually, in a kind of be careful what you wish for way, that Republicans for 40 years dreamed of having a conservative majority court. They've now got it. And what Simon's suggesting there is it actually could become a burden for Republicans because the court could stake out ever more conservative but also unpopular positions in the country. What's your read of that? And and, and you as somebody who was and you know is from that never trump wing from of the party what do you hear from those around you in the wider republican family is there a moving away from trump personally branded as a loser as i said at the start or is there a moving away from trumpism what kind of reckoning is going on in your party that you can describe for us yeah let me try to unpack this because there's a bunch of layers to it so one of the fundamental dynamics is that despite the fact that these extreme election denialists were rejected in many of the contested swing state races. Trump endorsed candidates won all over the place. The incoming class of congressional members as well as state chambers, they are just much more MAGA. The thing that's happening for Republicans, and it's 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 true of the court and it's true of uh, elections, which is that the gap between the more extreme factions of the Republican Party and sort of your average normie Republican who likes lower taxes and limited government, free markets, and I would put myself in that category, that gap has gotten really wide, almost impossible to to bridge that gap. And the same thing is happening with the courts. The court has moved much further right, which does not comport with the sort of normie center People talk about Trump, you know, MAGA, hard right. And it's true in, in 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 one sense. In another sense, one of the things he had going for him was because he was this kind of thrice married television personality, nobody actually thought of him as a social conservative. They thought of him actually as kind of a cultural moderate. And it helped him to be a cultural moderate with a lot of these sort of secular working class voters um, who actually- he even thought of him as a kind of New York liberal that's for right. his position on gay rights Exa- and on guns. That's and right. So he was not a moral crusader. And so a lot of those voters who actually don't kind of like a Mike Pence uh, stance on things, they find him sort of weird. They they could relate to Trump in that way. Like I hear from those people all the time. And it's funny, even- People who are, they'll say this line, and the first time I heard it, I sort of chuckled, but then I heard it so many times that I realized this is a deeply embedded sentiment from a lot of older voters, especially women, where they say, look, I'm pro-life, but I believe in a woman's right to choose. Trump's strength emanates from base primary voters, and that base is quite large. It was large enough to essentially give Trump every candidate he wanted in the primary, but then they lost in the general election and that is a problem for Republicans. It's why you see this internal fighting in the House and the Senate is because those two factions are getting further and further away from each other. Just on one quick thing about Trump and his own standing, we are braced for the report of the Select Committee uh, of the House 
into the January the 6th events of 2021 could be coming as soon as middle of next week. We're not sure. It could be longer. If they do come up, first of all, do you expect, Sarah Longwell, a, a verdict that could point the finger particularly at Donald Trump? And if it does, does it damage him or is it just yet another thing that bounces off him, particularly with the people you're talking about, that base of Republican primary voters? Yeah, I think that, yes, I think it's going to come out. I think it's going to come out, uh, I think, in in a slightly unfortunate timing right before Christmas. But I think it's going to be big. I think it's going to have referrals in it to the Department of Justice for uh, indictments. And I think that it's going to be focused pretty squarely on Trump. And I also think, look, you've got an outstanding Georgia potential indictment. For him trying to, you know, tell Brad Raffensperger to find those 11,000 votes in Georgia. Um, You've got the Mar-a-Lago documents case. And so he could be under criminal indictment on so many fronts in the coming months. And there's always this question, and I genuinely don't know the answer to it, although I guess I could take a stab at it, but is whether or not that hurts or helps Trump. Because one of his superpowers has been... That when he is pitted against an institution that a lot of conservatives don't like, for example, the FBI now, because they used to be pro-police, but now they're not, I guess, when you can, he sets himself up as a victim and people are sort of forced to take his side against, you know, the deep state that they hate, that creates this sort of rally round Trump effect. And that actually can make him more powerful as opposed to in this moment where I think he's at his political weakest You've taken us to the crucial thing, which is obviously a huge part of the politics of 2023 will be the first early rounds of 2024 and people bracing for that election. I'm going to come back to you in a minute, Sarah, on how that plays out, given everything you've just said. But to you first, Simon, you know, a big question before the election among Democrats was, does Joe Biden run again. Lots of people feel that question is pretty settled by the fact that these midterms were, as you predicted, but most didn't, quite good for Democrats. Uh, This is my thought. Is Joe Biden safe in a way as long as Donald Trump is the obvious looming opponent on the other side? Clearly, Trump was a presence in the midterms. That's why Democrats did well. Is Joe Biden the guy as long as Trump is around? But if Trump is not around... Does Joe Biden suddenly look vulnerable on the Democratic side to a potential challenger saying, look, you're going to be 82 come that election. We need to make way for a new generation of leadership. Yeah, I I mean, my assumption is that Joe Biden runs for re-election. I don't know that that's going to happen, but I think that's sort of what most Democrats feel now. It's certainly the signals the White House is giving. But I think whether he runs or not, what's important about the question you're asking is how are the Democrats going to fare in 2024? We have two opportunities to significantly improve both the brand of the party and Joe Biden's personal brand, which will strengthen everything which is for us in 2024, which is if we do wound Putin and look like we've been successful in Ukraine in this unified effort with our European and UK partners, and also if the economy feels better in two years or a year and a half than it does today, which it is likely to do, you know, we could be much stronger as a party even than we are today, even even after this very strong election, regardless of who our nominee is. And so I think when you look at the structural things underneath, regardless of who our candidate is, the Democratic Party is going to be strong going into the next election. Whereas I think the Republicans, as Sarah was discussing, have these millstones around their neck. If we were in a parliamentary democracy, 
Sarah would be in a different party than Trump right now. There would be there would have been a split between the parties. And it's not really clear, given the distance she's describing, that any politician's capable of uniting the factions now of the Republican Party and being successful. I just my basic takeaway is regardless of who our nominee is, I'd rather be us than them as we head into 2024. Yeah. On that, that challenge for Republicans and the and the sort of different factions that Simon's identified. Sarah, what a lot of people have been saying is Trump does well under the Republican system, that kind of winner-takes-all system in those primaries, where even if you just get 31%, you can be the winner as long as nobody gets you know above 30%. That all requires Republicans to begin to coalesce, make, you know, certainly in 2023, around not necessarily their first choice, but their first choice to take on Donald Trump. Uh, And then it's a head to head. And maybe in that situation, you know, Lord Voldemort can be slain. But how do you see that? Do you see your party beginning to see not necessarily who the nominee is for 24, but who the challenger against Donald Trump is? And, And I suppose I'm bound to ask, is that figure Ron DeSantis? Yeah, look, um, when I do the focus groups, I always ask a question. I say, uh, do you want to see Donald Trump run in 2024? And um, right around the January 6th committee, I saw those numbers take a nosedive. And and then I would say, okay, well, if Trump doesn't run, who do you want to see run? And the number one name with a bullet, without any caveats, is Ron DeSantis. The thing, though, about DeSantis is the dynamic of a head-to-head between a Trump understudy and Trump himself is one that is very difficult to predict. I'm not sure Ron DeSantis will do it. I think right now you're much more likely, based on what you're seeing, to see Nikki Haley run and Mike Pence run, uh, maybe Chris Christie, Mike Pompeo, a bunch of kind of also-rans that are not going to excite this sort of new coalition of voters. And that's where I could see Donald Trump pulling it out. I think because Trump got in so early, there's going to be like a two-phase primary. It's going to be different from maybe anything we've seen, where there's kind of an early set of people after, you know, people get a sense of how Trump is faring with his base, there could be another set of challengers that get in. And then ultimately, there's going to need to be, by primary time, a coalesce. They can't do what they did in 2016, and they know that, which is allow a massive group of people to fracture the vote and give Trump a plurality in his burn-it-all-down lane again. Well, on the base of what you said, it means 2023 is in some ways the first phase of that 2024 contest. That winnowing uh, will have to happen then. You've, in a way, given us a, a prediction of a kind for 2023. But invidious question to both of you, although, Simon, with your track record, you can hardly go wrong. But why don't we just ask <laughs> both of you for a surprise that we should be bracing for, something that nobody else is talking about or other people would you know, would find unexpected Something that you think will be part of the story of 2023? Simon, you first, and then we'll come back to you, Sarah. God, it's a great question. I I think, to me, the biggest surprise of the last few weeks as we project forward is what's happening with Twitter. I don't know what's going to happen with Twitter. It's a major event in in our political discourse in the United States. Um, You know, part of the way I communicated. I had 100 million Twitter views and between the beginning of October and the beginning of November. It was the primary way that many of us talked to one another um, in, in democratic politics. And so I think the biggest surprise now, and I just projected forward, is what's happened with Elon Musk, who has gone from being this enormously admirable you know, tech titan who's built all these remarkable companies to being you know, a MAGA lunatic and, and, and taking this global platform that was widely used by many global politicians to communicate in English 
to people around the world and and putting it in danger. And so I think that's, to me, at least for now, the biggest surprise. Sarah? Yeah, I'm going to build on what I said before uh, and, and frame it more as a prediction, which is that I think that Ron DeSantis is going to be all the talk for a while. And then I think he is going to... Uh, maybe like a Jeb Bush or like a Scott Walker. I think he's going to be sort of the the fait accompli until he's not. I think it will be somebody else who emerges as the um, as the front runner uh, to take on Donald Trump and not DeSantis. I think this is a good um, prediction for us to be offering our listeners, I, if only because the, at the equivalent stage of the 2008 election cycle, the name on everyone's lips, I think, was Rudy Giuliani. And I think in 2016, at the equivalent stage where we are now in, in, the, in December of 2022, the equivalent stage for 2016, everyone would have been talking about Jeb Bush. And you can ask both of them how their presidencies got, went, went <laughs> uh, because it didn't happen. So you've uh, put down an important marker there. Both of you, uh, that not really buying the Ron DeSantis boom, uh, either of you. And as I've said, with your track records, that's a, a projection at least worth listening to. Simon Rosenberg, Sarah Longwell, thanks so much for joining me for this look back as we look forward to 2023. Thank you both. Thank you. Thank you. And that is all from me for this week. Now, Politics Weekly America is taking a short break to catch our breath after what has been quite a year. But fear not, for the next two weeks, we will be revisiting two of our favourite episodes from 2022. Next week, we thought it would be interesting to listen back to my conversation with the journalist John Ronson, who has been studying for years the world of conspiracy theories and the far right. And as part of that, he came across a certain Alex Jones. So listen next Friday to John's take on why Jones got to be the radio host in the headlines for all the wrong reasons. And before I go, I wanted to let you know about The Guardian and Observer's 2022 charity appeal. As the cost of living crisis pushes 14.5 million people below the UK poverty line, more families than ever are facing a bleak Christmas. So please join us as we raise funds for charities working on the front line. All donations will go to Citizens Advice and Locality to help support local grassroots projects, which aim to support those who've been hit hardest. You can find the link to donate on this week's episode page for Politics Weekly America at theguardian.com. But for now, it's goodbye. The producer is Daniel Stevens, the executive producer, Maz Ebtahaj. Thanks as always, for listening. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.